With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking.、Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and、uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Turn with me, please, to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to Thy loving kindness. According to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, I have sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou dost judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part thou wilt make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from Thy presence, and do not take Thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of Thy salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors Thy ways, and sinners will be converted to Thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, Thou God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of Thy righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare Thy praise. For Thou dost not delight in sacrifice; otherwise, I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, Thou wilt not despise. By Thy favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then Thou wilt delight in righteous sacrifices. In burnt offerings and in whole burnt offering, then young bulls will be offered on that altar. Then turn in your booklets to page 1901, and what we're looking at this evening is the uses of the law of God for everybody, no matter who you are in this earth. And last,、uh, for the past couple of Sunday evenings, we've talked about question 94. Is there any use of the moral law to man since the fall? Although no man since the fall can attain to righteousness and life by the moral law, yet there is great use thereof, as well common to all men as peculiar either to the unregenerate or the regenerate. And so the main point there is that there is a great use, but there is one thing the law of God is not good for. And it was never to be used for this, and it's not effective when it is used in this manner. And that is to try to impress God with your goodness, so as to win His favor. That because nobody is able to attain the righteousness demanded by the law of God, trying to get to heaven by good works is of no avail. Question ninety-five: Of what use is the moral law to all men? Now you notice there's three questions growing out of question ninety-four. Question ninety-five has to do with the use of the moral law in the lives of everybody. 
Question 96 has to do with the use of the law, particularly in the unregenerate man, the unbeliever. And question 97 has reference to the use of the law of God in the life of the regenerate or the Christian person. So tonight we're going to look at 95. And as we do, I want you to notice, I think, the five uh, functions and uses of the law of God in the lives of everybody. Of what use is the moral law to all men? The moral law is of use to all men. One, to inform them of the holy nature and will of God. Two, and of their duty, binding them to walk accordingly. Three, to convince them of their disability to keep it and of the sinful pollution of their nature, hearts, and lives. One, two, three, four. To humble them in the sense of their sin and misery and thereby help them to a five, to a clearer sight of, their, of the need they have of Christ and of the perfection of his obedience. So you see the five things. To inform us of the character of God, to inform us of our duty before God, to convict us of our sins, both of our disability to keep the law and the pollution that sin brings into our hearts and lives, to humble us in the sense of our sin and misery, and thereby to help men uh, obtain a clearer sight of their need of Christ. So we're going to look at these this evening. Now one thing that the Bible emphasizes, and you see reflected in the uh, larger catechism, is that all men without exception, everybody, every human being without exception is accountable to use the law of God, and the law of God has a very practical use in the lives of everybody in the whole wide world. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever you be, the Bible has a great use for you. Whether you're elect or reprobate, whether you're destined to heaven or destined to hell, the law of God is a great use to you in this life. And that's the point of this question 95, the uses of God's law for everybody. And so let's look, as we have time, at these five uses of the law of God in the lives of everybody in the whole wide world. First of all, God's law informs us of his holy nature and will. God's law informs us of God's holy nature and will. Leviticus 20, verses 7 and 8 say this, You shall consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am the Lord your God, and you shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Now you remember a few weeks ago we said that one, there are several names for the laws of God in Scripture, statutes, judgments, testimonies. And the reason God's laws are referred to as God's testimonies is because they testify to God, that they bear witness to what God is like. In fact, uh, the law of God shows everybody what God's like and what God demands. It shows us how to be holy like God our Creator. God requires in His law nothing less than the kind of life He lives, but on a creaturely level. In fact, I want you to turn in your uh, booklets to page uh, 1944, 43, and I want you to notice that each one of the Ten Commandments is rooted in one or more of God's perfections. The reason behind each one of the commandments is because of what God is like. For instance, the first commandment testifies to God unity and oneness. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. 
The second commandment, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, testifies to God's spirituality. Third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain, testifies to God's holiness. Fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, testifies to his own covenant life and self-contained existence of self-rest. The fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, testifies to God's sovereignty. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not commit murder, testifies to God's love. The seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, testifies to God's faithfulness. The eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal, testifies to God's creatorship and ownership of everything. The ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness, testifies to God's truthfulness and faithfulness. The tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet, testifies to God's perfection and self-contentment. And whenever we do read of a law in the scriptures, the first thing we ought to ask is, what does this tell us about God and what God is like? Because that is the purpose of the law of God for everybody, written down in black and white. People can read the scriptures and find out what God is like. Second use that it has in the life of everybody is that it informs everybody of his or her duty before God binding us to live accordingly. The law of God in the Bible not only tells you what God's like, but it tells everybody what his or her duty is before God. We often speak of morality. Even liberals and atheists speak of morality. By the way, you know what Ken Young told me this morning speaking of atheists? He said they've established the new National Day commemorating atheism on April the 1st. But all true, all true morality must be based on the perfect character of God revealed in His law. Anything that's not based upon the character of God revealed in His law is immorality. In fact, it's impossible to have morality apart from the revelation of God's character found in Scripture. That God reveals Himself and His duty to, for us in Scripture, and that's the only basis for any morality at all. Uh, I'll tell you a story I've told through the years, but there's people here tonight that haven't heard it. The rest of you can sleep for a few minutes. About a young Buddhist woman that come, came into my study in Dunwoody. She'd lived a very rough life. And she uh, was very arrogant. And she was having some problems. She'd come out of jail. And she, uh, I was figuring out, how can I witness to this Buddhist woman who's lived a hard and wicked life? And so my standard procedure was to ask her, what do you think about child molestation? Out of the blue. She looks at me sort of funny and, and says, what? I said, what do you think about child molestation? You like it? You don't like it? You think it's good, bad, indifferent? What? She said, well, I think it's evil. I said, well, so do I, but why do you? You're a Buddhist. You don't believe there's any moral absolutes from God governing all of life. I know why I believe it's evil. Because God's given us a revelation of his character in the Bible and he says it's immorality. But how in the world can you condemn somebody's actions as evil when there's no standard that you have from God that judges everybody's standard? You may not like what this child molester did. You may wish he didn't do it. You may not get a kick out of it. But who are you to say it's evil for him to do it? She starts crying. And through the tears, she says to me, Pastor Moorcraft, then I don't want to live in a world without absolutes. 
if I can't condemn child molestation. I said, sweetie, you don't live in a world without moral absolutes. And those same moral absolutes that condemn the child molester condemn you before God. And you must repent and come to faith in him. And she did. And she became a Christian that day. And that is the point. <clears throat> Apart or made a profession of faith anyway. That, uh, that, that without this revelation of the character of God contained in biblical law, there is absolutely no basis for morality at all. <clears throat> the Bible defines morality as, as imitating God. In Ephesians 5, it says flat out, be imitators of God. Live the way God lives on earth at a creaturely level. Let his character be reflected in your character. That's your duty. That's what you were created to do. That's why you were made in God's image. To do good like God does good. And good is whatever God's law says is good. No matter what you think of it or I think of it. Good is whatever God's law says is good because it's in accordance with his character. And evil is anything contrary to or not in conformity with that law. Whatever God says is good is good because it reflects his character. Whatever God says is evil is evil because that evil is out of accord with his character. Romans 12, 9 says, Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. There's absolutely no way to obey that verse apart from the moral law of God. Nobody can abhor evil or identify evil. No one can cling to what is good or identify what is good apart from the absolute moral standards of God's law. In fact, Micah 6.8 says, He, that is God, has told you, O man, what is good. It doesn't say He's told you, O Israelite. He's told you, O Jew. He's told you, O Christian. It says, He has told you, O man, Christian or not, Jewish or Gentile, what is good. Defining that in His law. And therefore, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. First John 3, 4 says this. It says that everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. There you have a definition of sin. It's lawlessness. It's not something you prefer. It's not something you are uh, feel unpleasant about. Sin is, to quote our shorter catechism, which is based upon this verse, sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. In fact, without God's law defining our duty, what we're to do and what we're not to do, it's impossible to define sin. You can't define sin without the law of God. Whenever you talk about sin, apart from the law of God, it's a purely arbitrary thing. It's whatever you sin is whatever you want it to be or not to be. And the only infallible, absolute, unchanging standard is the law of God. Romans 3.20 says, the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Romans 5.13 says, where there is no law, there is no violation. Romans 7.7 says, we would not have known sin except through the law. It is impossible to know what your duty as a created being is before God, and it is impossible to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good apart from that law. By the way, I need for you to take two minutes and save me from heresy. I missed a heretical typographical error on page 1948. Get your erasers real quick before anybody else reads a book and takes me before Presbytery. 
1948. Well, let's see. It may be different than yours. No, great. Um, hmm. Look along through 1947 or 48, and if you if you find something that looks a radical, change it for me. <laughs> it has to do. Oh, there it is. 1946, the second to the last paragraph. Just change something for me. That last sentence of that paragraph. <laughs> no basis for moral judgment and absolute standards of morality is impossible in a worldview not based on the written word of God. <laughs> I'll ignore what that means. <laughs> change the word impossible to possible. That's all you got to do. Change the word impossible to possible and you'll save me from heresy. The Bible clearly tells us that uh, no morality is possible without the law of God. In Proverbs fourteen seventeen, it says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. God's law is not just a revelation of our duty. It is a perfect, complete, comprehensive, authoritative guide to duty. In other words, the Bible spells out the entirety of your duty before God. There are no duties left out. There's no duties outside the Bible that's required of us before the living God. It is a, a, an entire picture. It covers the whole range of human existence. Deuteronomy 12.32 says, Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from. Whatever I command you. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect. And that word perfect means complete. It is a complete revelation of your duty before God. You don't have to guess, are there any, is there any other, are there any other duties left over? Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, lest He reprove you and you be proved a liar. You don't have to worry about adding to His words, abridging, supplementing, innovating. Your entire duty before God is set forth in the pages of Holy Scripture. In fact, without biblical law, not only is it impossible to have morality, it's impossible to define justice and righteousness and to distinguish Justice and righteousness from injustice and unrighteousness. Can you imagine what kind of world we would live in if the world, if the word justice was an arbitrary, arbitrarily defined? Well, we live in it. And you can see the effects of this arbitrarily defined justice. You can be punished in courts of law for crimes that God does not say are crimes, and you can get off in courts of law for committing crimes that God says are crimes that the state does not recognize as crimes. So without the basis of the law of God, justice means whatever anybody uses it, wants it to mean. But Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 say this. I love these two verses. It's a challenge that you can throw out to this modern world millennia after it was written by Moses. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law, which I am setting before you today? 
Moses throwing out a challenge. Tell me, anybody in the world, can you tell me any other legal code that is as just as the this moral law that God is giving you through me today, i.e., Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The moral law of God contained in Holy Scripture. And you could ask that question just as truly now as you could back then. Tell me, Hindu, Buddhist, Islam, animist, Shintoist, Taoist. Can anybody present us with a code of law that is as just as this perfect code? And the answer is no. It is so perfect and so complete in its definition and administration of justice that one step away from the moral law of God in Holy Scripture is one step away from justice and from righteousness. And not to live in obedience to our duties set forth in God's law is to live in moral darkness and chaos because the Bible says that God's law is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. To refuse to do our duty as defined by God in the Bible is to hate God, the lawgiver. It's to reject light and life for darkness and death. Isaiah 5, 24 and 25 have these strong words to say. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Now there is one thought that we sometimes uh, overlook or are not aware of, and it's very important for us to bear in mind, not only for ourselves, but in witnessing other people and, and disciplining our children. And that is that God's revelation of our duty before him in his law is an integrated organic whole. That is, the spelling of our, out of our duties before God and the law of God is not just a bag of duties. You reach in today and open this duty cracker and there is your duty for the day. And then tomorrow you reach in, you peel out, not a cracker, cookie, a duty co- cooker, cookie and you get out and next, here's my duty in the tree. Okay, that's not how the law of God is, big list of duties. Here's your 2700th duty. Uh, Rather, it is an organic, interrelated whole so that to disobey the moral of God at one point is to disobey it at all points. That when you break one law of the Bible, When you fail to do one duty and you transgress the law of God, you are breaking the entire law of God. Turn to James and you'll see. That's exactly what James says. James chapter 2, and let's read verses 8 through 12. James 2, 8 through 12. If you are fulfilling the royal law... According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. So if you're trying to keep the law of God everywhere else but one point... You've broken the whole law. 
For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged by the law of liberty. Now, keep that passage open and notice the points that it makes. First of all, it describes biblical law as the royal law. The law of God contained in the scriptures that defines your duties before him and reveals God's character is the revealed will of the king of the universe. It's the declaration of of his will for the human race. Second, this royal law convicts and condemns anyone who breaks it as a guilty transgressor deserving God's judgment. No matter who you are, no matter whether you believe that or not, no matter what religion you hold, that if you break any of the law, moral laws of the Bible in the Old or New Testament, that law convicts you as a transgressor who deserves God's judgment. Thirdly, it says there, if anyone breaks one law, he becomes guilty of breaking them all. Now, how can that be? How can you break one of the commandments and become guilty of them all, breaking them all? Well, let's say you have a horse farm, and there is a fence around the pasture. And the horse jumps the fence over in the far eastern part of the pasture, but not over the western part and the northern part and the southern part and the northeast and southern east, just over in the western part. That's the only part of the fence he jumped over. Which part of the pasture is he out of? Just the western part, eastern part? He's out of the whole pasture. He has transgressed the whole fence. He's gone across the entire fence and is living outside the pasture. And that's an illustration on why a person can break one law, even though he's trying to obey the others, and he breaks one law, he's guilty of all, because he is a rebel at that point. He is a rebel against the lawgiver. Says, if you obey the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, but you break the commandment, thou shalt commit not uh, commit murder. Then you are guilty of breaking the whole law, because you're outside the fence. You're a transgressor. That's what the word means: sin to go outside of and beyond. And at that point, when you've sinned against God. Whatever the sin is, and you've caved into a temptation, you have in essence, and I'm going to say these words deliberately strong, you are saying to God, God, go to hell. I know I should be inside the fence. I know what my duty is. I don't want to do it. And you jump the fence, and at that point you're a rebel against the lawgiver himself and are guilty of transgressing the whole law. And therefore, the text says in James, we are to so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the perfect law of liberty. That means that someday, every every day of our lives, every human being is being judged by the standard of God's law in the Bible. And then the last point to bring out from this James passage is that it's only as people live in terms of the royal law that they live in liberty. 
Did you notice there in verse 12 what this royal law is also called? It says, so speak and so act as those who are judged by the law of liberty. That's a reflection of, of Psalm 119, verses 44 and 45 that say, So I will keep thy law continually forever and ever, and I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. You see, that's not the way the modern, modern unbelieving world thinks. How can you have liberty and have to be worried about law? But for the Christian, there's no conflict whatsoever. That it's only as that believer lives within the structure of God's law, is he at liberty? And is he fully human? Now, the third use of the law of God in the lives of everybody in the whole wide world is to convict everybody of his or her sin. Not only to inform us of what God's like and what our duty before God is, but the use of God's law for everybody is to convict everybody of his or her sin any time he breaks the law of God. Now, what is this conviction of sin? This knowledge of sin that comes with the law of God is not merely an intellectual thing. Yes, I have broken the Ten Commandments, but after all, we're all human. Let's go on to the next thing. This conviction is a conviction of guilt that pricks the conscience and that burdens the conscience. There's a great doctrinal dissertation that's been published and made readable in a great book called The Grace of Law by Ernest Kevin that I highly recommend to you. And in that he quotes a lot of Puritans. Listen to what John Flavel says. The law of God has a soul-wounding and heart-cutting power. And until the soul is wounded for sin, it will never be converted from sin and brought effectually to Jesus Christ. And therefore, the Puritan Thomas Goodwin said, We ministers are to make it the greatest of our business to preach the law and come with that great hammer to break your bones in pieces first that we may then preach the gospel. You see, it's more than intellectual, this conviction of sin. When a person is convicted of sin, he, he identifies with the psalm that we read just a while ago in Psalm 51. That great psalm of confession after sins, uh, David's sin with Bathsheba. Turn back there and just notice some words. It tells us a great deal about conviction and what it does to a person and how it's experienced when we compare ourselves with the law of God. Did you notice all the words for sin in that psalm? Gives us insight into what sin really is. It's missing the mark. It's transgression. It's rebellion. It's evil. It's only evil. It covers the sinner with guilt and shame and a sense of filthiness. As one Puritan said, it unmans a man. And it fills the soul with deep sadness. Sin does, and it separates from God. This psalm also gives us great insight into God's mercy on sinners. It speaks of God's mercy and His loving kindness and the multitude of His tender mercies, His blotting out of our transgressions and His thorough washing of a person who confesses his sin. But it also helps us understand what this conviction feels like. Conviction of sin is not some easy and easily forgotten experience. David says in Psalm 51, My sin is 
ever before me. I can't get it out of my mind. It's painful to think of these sins because our sin, says David, is against God. And the pain we feel is not slight or easy, for he says it gives him pain like broken bones. You ever broken your bo- a bone in your body? A German theologian by the name of Toluk says this, The point which every sinner must reach who would realize the forgiveness of his sins is that he feels himself condemned by his conscience without being accused of men and that he cannot but acknowledge the justice of the condemning sentence of Almighty God. That's the nature of conviction of sin. That's the purpose of the law of God, to convict us of our transgressions against us. Now, what does this uh, conviction, what's the content of this conviction? That is, what does it make us understand? What does it do to us? Well, this conviction of sin, when we compare ourselves to the law of God, convinces us of our disability to obey the law of God. We're convicted when we honestly compare ourselves with God's law. I haven't done my duty. And when I've done my duty at my dead level best, it's still worthy of damnation. As one great Puritan said, my highest prayers and most spiritual devotions are worthy of damnation. Because I am not doing perfectly what the law of God requires of me. Psalm 19, verses 11 through 13 say this. Psalm 19, 11 through 13. Moreover, by them, by the laws of God, thy servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. John Calvin said one time that we are only aware of one one hundredth of our sinfulness and of the pollution of our own hearts. Human beings are aware, whether it's one hundredth or one thousandth, of only a small portion of his or her sinfulness. We all tend to think too highly of ourselves. When we allow the law of God to search us and to try us, it brings us an awareness of our sinfulness greater and more intense and uglier than we'd ever known previous to that point. The more we read the law of God, anybody reads the law of God. And the more we compare ourselves to its demands of perfect righteousness, the more we realize that we do not have the ability in and of ourselves to keep it because of our own sin. You'll notice there in Psalm 19, verses 11 through 13, it says that the law of God warns His servants of all their sinful ways and thoughts. It says it promises them good rewards in their keeping of the law of God. It says that by the law of God, a person can discern his errors, that is, become convicted of those sins of which he was not previously aware, sins done inadvertently because of ignorance or weakness or carelessness. The law of God reveals to us our hidden faults, those sins that are not only hidden from our neighbors, but sometimes hidden from our own analysis, but not hidden from God. And the law of God moves those whose sins are exposed and who are convicted of those sins to confess them to God and to pray for acquittal and forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. The law of God convicts us 
of our sins. Someone might object. Isn't it mockery then? Since we're disabled, we cannot keep the law of God perfectly. Isn't it mockery for God to keep commanding a person to do something he is unable to do and then punish him for not doing it? I mean, that's what conviction of sin does. It convicts you that you're incapable of obeying the law of God in and of yourself. Well, is it fair then for God to keep on demanding us of us perfect righteousness when he knows we can't come up with it and then punishes us because we don't have perfect righteousness? Let me quote some great Puritans. Thomas Blake. God's law is a rule of our duty not a measure of our strength. Ernest Kevin. Man had the responsibility of keeping himself morally able to keep God's law, and he is to blame for what he has allowed himself to become. Human inability does not negate the law of God or man's obligation to obey it. It is no mockery for a man to be commanded to do something which through his own fault he has made himself unable to do. So then breaking God's law does not make the transgressor free from his responsibility to obey that law. Man's failing to do his duty is not a basis for excusing him from his duty. One Puritan has said God has not lost his right to command, though man has lost his ability to obey. Man's impotence does not dissolve man's obligation. Let's put it in a simple little illustration. You owe the bank $100,000. You took out the loan. You signed all the papers. You got your money. You spent it. Times comes to set a, 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 a payment, repayment schedule. You go to the bank and you say, I don't have $100,000 and you can't charge. You can't make me do something I don't have the ability to do. I owe $100,000, but I don't have the ability to pay you $100,000. So, see, because it's unjust to make a man do something you know good and well he doesn't have the ability to do. Now, is that the way banks do their business? No. He did have the ability to pay it, and he is responsible for losing that ability because of carelessness and theft. And the same is true of the law of God. God's law convicts us of our inability to obey it. And God's law convicts, us, convicts people of the sinful pollution of their nature and their hearts and their lives. When we honestly measure ourselves by the law of God, it breaks us. Because it reveals to us the depth and prevalence of the sinful pollution that's down deep in our lives. It breaks pride and silences boasting in self. It ends all talk of high self-esteem. And it leaves us sprawling on our faces in the dust as wretched sinners before a holy God deserving to be judged by Him. With a painful perception of our own vileness and unworthiness before God, we cry out to God with Ezra, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to you, for my iniquities are increased over my head, and my trespasses grown up into the heavens. 
Or we cry with David, innumerable evils have compassed me about. My iniquities have taken hold upon me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head, therefore my heart fails me. And when David confesses his sin with Bathsheba in Psalm 51 as a sin against God and evil in his sight, David adds these words, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge me. And you see, that's the intention of God in giving His law to all men without exception. And that is to silence man of his boasting. In Romans three nineteen through 20, we read these words. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That is, in the law, literally. That is, in the sphere of the law, where the law demands and the Lord judges. That every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And what does it say? It says the law of God is authoritative to in the lives of everyone that's in its sphere. That's in that sphere where it judges and where it commands. And who is that? The whole world that stands accountable before God. And the purpose of this law and its conviction is that every mouth may be closed. That's why God convicts us of our sin as we compare ourselves before the law of God to shut our mouths. Because fallen man talks too much, usually about himself and about his own worth. The conviction of his sin before God shuts his mouth. The law condemns him and he knows it. He cannot argue with God who knows him through and through. So you see, the law of God is of tremendous use in the lives of everybody in the world. Tells you what God's like. Tells you what God's will is for your life and what your duty is before him in a comprehensive way. And it convicts you when you step outside the fence in thought, word, or behavior. It convicts you of your inability to obey it. It convicts you of your pollution, of this corruption that's in your life because of your sin. And we'll see next week that in the lives of God's people, the Holy Spirit takes the law and this conviction of it, of breaking it, and drives them to Christ with it. Shows them there is no way out. There's no way they can get God's favor by obeying the law of God because nobody's righteous. And they are shut up to every other way of escape except the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. We thank you, dear Lord, for giving us your law, for giving us your Son. We thank you for the salvation we have in him from the condemnation of the law. And we thank you for the power his Spirit gives us to walk, though imperfectly, in obedience to it. And we look forward to that day when we shall be perfected in our obedience at death and resurrection. For Jesus' sake, amen. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.